Hello everyone and welcome to Olivia Reads Books. This week I have a lovely collection of poetry and extracts from prose for you, all on the theme of love, which I really hope you'll enjoy. I'm going to start this evening by reading you a short poem about love from the 1800s by Walt Whitman. A Glimpse by Walt Whitman A glimpse through an interstice court of a crowd of workmen and drivers in a bar room around the stove late of a winter night, and I, unremarked, seated in a corner. Of a youth who loves me and whom I love, silently approaching and seating himself near, that he may hold me by the hand. A long while, amid the noises of coming and going, of drinking and oath and smutty jest, there we too, content, happy in being together, speaking little, perhaps not a word. That was a glimpse by Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman uh, was an American poet. He lived from 1819 to 1892 and would have been considered as one of the most influential 19th century American poets, as well as Emily Dickinson. This, po this poem is from Leaves of Grass, which is a collection that he put together over about 30 years. He kept editing it and adding more and more poems. I would say that this poem really is a, a timeless timeless description of, of a quiet kind of love. I read somewhere that Whitman was influenced by the long cadences and rhetorical strategies of biblical, biblical poetry, which struck me because um, the friend who recommended this to me um, said that it, it struck him because it's over 100 years old, yet it feels like a commentary on love in the 21st century. So I, I really, yeah, I really like the, the, the idea that actually there's a kind of love that Walt Whitman describes that is something that people have been longing for for centuries. And my friend also said that it can be read as a, as a poem about two strangers who are meeting and falling for each other, but also as an older couple who have known each other for years and are able to sit and enjoy each other's company without even saying a word. I really like that idea. I think there's something very powerful about feeling silence in a noisy room. It, it's often described as a very negative feeling. You can be in a room feel, full of people but feel totally alone. But actually, if you turn that around, sometimes it's nice to feel that you are so comfortable in the company of another person that you are as content as as if you were alone. So. I think I think really there are some are some themes in this poem that that um, say something about human nature and what we look for in companionship in a, in another person and that really does survive the test of time. My next poem is in complete contrast to Walt Whitman's. It is it does not describe a love that most people would aim for, but perhaps does describe the realities of marriage or at least living with somebody. It is, Darling, Would You Please Pick Up Those Books by Catherine Manis. 
How many times do I have to say, get rid of the books off the goddamn floor? Do you have any idea how it feels to step over books you wrote about her? Bloody hell, you sadist. What kind of man are you all day long, these fecking books? In my way for three years, your acclaimed books. Tell me now, what do you have to say for yourself? You think you're such a man, silent, brooding, pondering at the floor, pretending you're bored when I mention her. Fine, change the subject. A subject. Ask do I feel like I need more medication? No, I don't feel like I need more medication. It's the books. Don't you see? Don't you see? It's her. Why don't you listen to anything I say? And for God's sake, books on the floor are a safety hazard. Remember that man from Cork who nearly died? Fine, that man fell over a hurley, not a book. But I don't feel you're getting the point. The point is that a floor is not an intelligent place for books. I have to see. And books exactly that say exactly where and how you shagged her, what shirt she wore before you shagged her. I can write a book too about some man, better still about you. I can say something to demonize you. How would you feel about that? Ha ha. Why don't I write a book about how I hoover your sodding floor and how you've never once hoovered your floor? Why can't I be a muse? Why can't I be a her? What does one have to do to be in a book around here? Do I have to be dead for a man to write me a poem? How do you think it feels? to be non-muse material can't you say you feel for me what you felt for her can you say i'm better than that woman can't you get these books off the floor that was darling would you please pick up those books by catherine manis catherine manis is a contemporary poet who was born um, on long island new york which is also the birthplace of walt whitman completely coincidentally but she now lives in London. I like this kind of poem where the, it, well, it's very obviously not spoken from, from the poet's voice. Catherine Manis said in an interview, what I can do, I think, is appropriate voices in poems. Sometimes the voice has a don't mess with me quality. Sometimes it's desperate and wants to be loved. If I had to describe my voice in one phrase, I might call it indecisively ironic. She wasn't actually talking about this particular poem when she said that, but I think it does have, the voice here does have both a don't mess with me quality and is desperate and wants to be loved. Manis said that, that um, she was inspired to write this poem by a statement in an essay by Kate Clanchy, which said, the muse is silent. So she wanted to write a poem which was narrated by a very loud non-muse who, because she's the wife, is unpedestalized and unlike her, unlike her predecessor who was unattainable and idealized. I think this says something really about the farce of poetry. Not poems like this, this poems like this are, are making fun of it, but about the kind of poetry that actually it has n nothing to do with real life and often doesn't really mean anything at all. My brother was saying to me the other day that he's not really a fan of poetry because sometimes he thinks that poets just say things in a lot of fancy words and really they're saying nothing at all. The speaker in this poem is just frustrated because their husband 
keep writing about this woman because it makes for a dramatic story with intense emotions. Real love in the everyday sense is not always conducive to that kind of poetry. In fact, it very rarely is. I mean, to live with someone, you probably do need to tell them to take their books off the floor, but that doesn't make for romantic poetry or dramatic sonnets. My next poem is called Because by James Macaulay. It, it, talk, it talks about a, a different kind of marriage. It's a, it's a marriage all the same and, and a kind of love, but it is from the perspective of, of a child and thinking about, about his parents long after their deaths. Because by James Macaulay. My father and mother never quarreled. They were united in a kind of love as daily as the Sydney Morning Herald rather than like the eagle or the dove. I never saw them casually touch or show a moment's joy in one another. Why should this matter to me now so much? I think it bore more hardly on my mother, who had more generous feelings to express. My father had dammed up his Irish blood against all drinking, praying fecklessness and stiffened into stone and creaking wood. His lips would make a twitching sound as though spontaneous impulse must be kept at bay. That was mainly weakness I see now, but then my feelings curled back in dismay. Small things can pit the memory like a cyst. Having seen other fathers greet their sons, I put my childish face up to be kissed after an absence. The rebuff still stuns my blood. The poor man's curt embarrassment at such a delicate proffer of affection cut like a saw. But home the lesson went. My tenderness thenceforth escaped detection. My mother sang because and Annie Laurie, White Wings and other songs. Her voice was sweet. I never gave enough and I'm sorry. But we were all closed in the same defeat. People do what they can. They were good people, they cared for us and loved us. Once they stood tall in my childhood as the school, the steeple. How can I judge without ingratitude? Judgment is simply trying to reject a part of what we are because it hurts. The living cannot call the dead collect. They won't accept the charge and it reverts. It's my own judgment day that I draw near. Descending in the past without a clue down to that central deadness. The despair older than any hope I ever knew. That was Because by James Macaulay. James Macaulay was an Australian poet who was born in 1917 and died in 1976. And this poem was published in one of his later collections, Surprises of the Sun in 1969. When thinking about this poem, I think it's quite interesting to note that Macaulay's father was Catholic originally and abandoned his faith before he even had children. But Macaulay converted to Catholicism at the age of 35. Despite this, though, there is a really, a deeply depressing bleakness, especially for someone with a religious faith uh, in, in this poem he's talking about at the end coming to his own judgment day but the despair that he still feels within himself is older than any hope he ever knew the idea of religion is 
is all about hope in my in my opinion anyway but, but it just shows that a lack of love in childhood is is something that that people hold keep with themselves their whole life long and it's this lack of love it 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 didn't just affect him then, but it has stopped him from showing love to other people when he says, my tenderness thenceforth escaped detection. We've had two poems about marriage today, and I thought I would just share with you a very short extract, which is not about marriage, but um, I think it's quite interesting to think, to think about when talking about marriage. Man is a creature who lives not upon bread alone, but principally by catchwords, and the little rift between the sexes is astonishingly widened by simply teaching one set of catchwords to the girls and another to the boys. That sentence is taken from Robert Louis Stevenson's Virginibus Puresque and Other Papers, which was written in 1881. The title translates to Of Maidens and of Youths. I think this sentence speaks for itself when thinking about marriages and maybe the reasons for failed marriages that have fallen apart. I found this quotation when I was reading Ian Sansom's Reading Room, A Year of Literary Curiosities. It's a great book to dip in and out of. He has collected 365 extracts from uh, from literature, poetry, essays, letters, as well as historical and scientific documents that have all come from the British Library. It's got colour illustrations too. It's a really lovely book to have. This one's from the 13th of March. I would definitely recommend it if you're a, fa if you're a fan of bite-sized literature that might lead you to go on and, and explore something a bit more deeply. My next piece for you this evening is from a novel. It's The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford. I have come to be very much of a cynic in these matters. I mean that it is impossible to believe in the permanence of man's or woman's love, or at any rate, it is impossible to believe in the permanence of any early passion. As I see it, at least, with regard to man, a love affair, a love for any definite woman, is something in the nature of a widening of the experience. With each new woman that a man is attracted to, there appears to, to come a broadening of the outlook, or, if you like, an acquiring of new territory. A turn of the eyebrow, a tone of the voice, a queer characteristic gesture, all these things, and it is these things that cause to arise the passion of love, all these things are like so many objects on the horizon of the landscape that tempt a man to walk beyond the horizon to explore. He wants to get, as it were, behind those eyebrows with the peculiar turn, as if he desired to see the world with the eyes that they overshadow. He wants to hear that voice applying itself to every possible pos proposition, to every possible topic. He wants to see those characteristic gestures against every possible background. Of the question of the sex instinct, I know very little, and I do not think that it counts for much, for very much, in a, re in a really great passion. It can be aroused by such nothings, by an untied shoelace, by a glance of the eye in passing, that I think it might be left out of the calculation. I don't mean to say that any great passion can exist without a desire for consummation. That seems to be me to be a commonplace, and to be therefore a matter needing no comment at all. 
it is a thing with all its accidents that must be taken for granted, as in a novel or a biography, you take it for granted that the characters have their meals with some regularity. But the real fierceness of desire, the heat of a passion long continued and withering up the soul of a man, is the craving for identity with the woman that he loves. He desires to see with the same eyes, to touch with the same sense of touch, to hear with the same ears, to lose his identity, to be enveloped, to be supported. For whatever may be said of the relation of the sexes, there is no man who loves a woman that does not desire to come to her for the renewal of his courage, for the cutting asunder of his difficulties. And that will be the mainspring, mainspring of his desire for her. We are all so afraid, we are all so alone, we also need from the outside the assurance of our own worthiness to exist. That was from The Good Soldier by Ford Maddox Ford, which is a novel that comes very highly recommended. It, um, it is included in the Modern Library 100 Best Novels, The Observer's 100 Greatest Novels of All Time, and The Guardian's 1000 Novels Everyone Must Read. Ford Maddox Ford was born in 1873 and died in 1939, but he wrote this in 1915. The story follows two couples who are in seemingly, from the outside, perfect but dissolving relationships. Um, it's told by an unreliable narrator whose voice you heard there, but this narrator can probably be believed when he begins the narrative with the line, this is the saddest story I have ever heard. The novel is about disillusionment in marriage and love. Things seem completely perfect and, and, until it all falls apart and everything is revealed later. But the novel does have a bit of a, a, bit of a mysterious take to it uh, because the unreliable narrator can't completely be believed. I think there could be several novels written with exactly the same story but from completely different perspectives. I suppose that's the same with, with any relationship at all. My next poem is definitely a bit more positive about the joys of love. It's A Birthday by Christina Rossetti. A Birthday by Christina Rossetti. My heart is like a singing bird whose nest is in a watered shoot. My heart is like an apple tree whose boughs are bent with thick-set fruit. My heart is like a rainbow shell that paddles in a halcyon sea. My heart is gladder than all these because my love is come to me. Raise me a dais of silk and down, hang it with ver and purple dyes, carve it in doves and pomegranates and peacocks with a hundred eyes. Work it in gold and silver grapes, in leaves and silver fleurs de lies, because the birthday of my life is come, my love is come to me. That was A Birthday by Christina Rossetti. Christina Rossetti was born in 1830 and died in 1894 and is known for a lot of her religious poetry which has been turned into hymns um, like Love Came Down at Christmas is one example and In the Bleak Midwinter as well. 
I love this idea of describing love as a birthday. Arguably, birthdays aren't really that special. They're not special to some people at all. I think most people actually find them to be a bit of an anticlimax and much prefer celebrating other people's birthdays. I mean, they are a nice way to celebrate special people in your life, but not to be a Grinch, everyone is born, so it's not that special. I think the birthday of your life suggests that you are only really born when you achieve true happiness and when when you really love someone with all your heart and, and feel loved too. I think this is just such a glorious poem full of so much joy and optimism. It's, you know, likening, likening love and the, and the feeling of being loved to all the growth in nature and all the wonderful things around us is just it's just something so positive my final poem the last one we've got this evening is one of my favorites the harvest bow by Seamus Heaney the harvest bow by Seamus Heaney as you plaited the harvest bow you implicated the mellow silence in you, in wheat that does not rust, but brightens as it tightens, twist by twist, into a knowable corona, a throwaway love knot of straw. Hands that age round ash plants and cane sticks, and lap the spurs on a lifetime of game cocks, harked to their gift, and worked with fine intent, until your fingers moved somnambulant. I tell and finger it like braille, gleaning the unsaid off the palpable. And if I spy into its golden loops, I see us walk between the railway slopes into an evening of long grass and midges, blue smoke straight up, old beds and ploughs and hedges, an auction notice on an outhouse wall, you with a harvest bow in your lapel, me with the fishing rod, Already homesick for the big lift of these evenings, as your stick whacking the tips off weeds and bushes beats out of time and beats, but flushes nothing. That original townland, still tongue-tied in the straw tied by your hand. The end of art is peace, could be the motto of this frail device that I have pinned up on our deal dresser, like a drawn snare slipped lately by the spirit of the corn, yet burnished by its passage and still warm. That was The Harvest Bow by one of my favourite poets, Seamus Heaney. Heaney was an Irish poet who died only in 2013, and this poem was published in Fieldwork in 1979. The, the person that he's talking to and about is his father, Patrick Heaney, who was a cattle trader and a farmer. And the harvest bow is, it's, it's, it's a piece of straw that's woven in, into a circle and can be pinned up in a house. I watched an interview with Heaney that says, in which he said that making the harvest bow was actually an Indo-European tradition, which has, is, is not really followed anymore, but it came from holding on to the spirit of the corn for next year. I like to think that Heaney wants to hold on to his father's spirit in the same way. For him, the little golden harvest bow is a symbol of the, the quietly stated but unending love that his father and he had for each other.
In a couple of Heaney's other poems, I'm thinking especially of Digging, he, he makes the point that, that his craft of poetry is really not that far removed from the, the crafts of his ancestors on the farm. And they, he compares manual work to poetry. Um, his, he says his, he's holding the pen in his hand and says, I'll dig with it. He said in the interview also that thinking about the harvest bow, he liked to think uh, that actually he, that his father was creative in that way. And creativity can be shown in many ways, in the same way that love can be, can be shown in many ways, uh, whether, it's, whether it's quietly stated or whether it's open and joyful like a birthday celebration. The quotation in the poem in the final verse, the end of art is peace, is, is by Yeats. It's a beautiful quotation and it really sums up the, the feeling of, of calmness and relaxation in this poem. Heaney and his father are walking around at, at, at sunset, which is a very calming time of day and they're looking over everything that's that's theirs and has been their ancestors and has, has lain as it has been for years it's a it's a lovely feeling that brings us to the end of olivia reed's books for this week thank you very much for listening i've hoped you you have enjoyed what you've heard a special thanks to tiernan antonia rory chris and amy who sent me pieces that i included this week if you've got something that you'd like to share on any theme, any any poet, any era at all, I would love to hear it. So please do send it to opc24 at cam.ac.uk. In the meantime, happy reading and have a lovely week.